The year is 1989. I'm Dave. I'm Zach. And I'm Connor. Hi. And this is My Marvelous Year. Hello and welcome to My Marvelous Year, the only reading club and podcast where we go through Marvel Origins from its history to today. This is 1989 Part 1 as we get ever closer to the 1990s in Marvel Comics. But before we get there, of course, we have to do a major, major X-Men event, the biggest X-Men event, and one of the biggest Marvel Universe events of the 1980s. Everything today is Inferno. Now this is Inferno Part 1. We will be doing a two-part coverage of this event. This is going to be about the X-Men-specific issues, and of course, that is the core of this event. We'll talk about the tie-ins next time. I'm Dave. You can find my stuff at comicbookherald.com. I am joined today by the only host who is a mere clone of my one true love, but legally, we're still married. It's Zach Dean. <laughs> Zach, how are you doing? Good. Better than I thought it would be after reading, what, 18, 19 issues of Inferno in one day? It was a lot Much of Inferno. Than I thought I was going to be. That's it was the a best lot of way oversized. to read Inferno, though, I think. <clears throat> is is in, uh, in one sitting? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's in, what I did oh, when I was about serious, 11, so like, and I've, uh, I've never been the same, so. Perfect. And joining us on the other line there, speaking up now, is Connor. Connor is the host of the Cerebrocast, a really awesome X-Men comic that I recommend people check out. Connor, how are you doing today? And what can you tell us a little bit about your show? I'm doing all right. Um, thank you for having me. Cerebro is a relatively new podcast. We launched, I say we, but it's just me in my house, but we seems like more official with podcasting, oh, yeah. right? Uh, we launched September 1st. It comes out every Tuesday. Every episode highlights one character and goes through their entire publication history. It's sort of a freeform conversation with a guest uh, usually someone who's a big fan of that character or a member of the creative team that is working on that character right now or both preferably uh, if they're a if they're a creator I hope they also are someone who loves the character right and um, then in the middle of it I basically do a Cerebro character file where I give you in publication order not the story order the history of the character so like mm -hmm. retcons included when things happened yeah. how uh the story evolved which is not unlike what you guys are doing in terms of going in chronological publication order so right you know you had you got to know maddie pryor as a regular person before this event retcons yes. who maddie pryor is but if you go to wikipedia Maddie Pryor is this person from the beginning. So I, I that like is to... very true because every time I've been like, wait, who is she again? I, I go to her Wikipedia page and you open it up and it's like Goblin Queen, the Goblin Queen, uh, the, right. go yeah. the Goblin yeah. Queen's Wikipedia page, and I've always been like, oh, okay, what the hell? Are we... <laughs> yeah. You know, See, it's wild that you need to Google her because I think about Madeline Pryor like every day of my life. So it's just it, <laughs> it wouldn't occur to me that you would ever need to Google this character. She has lived indelibly in my soul. Uh, the darkest part of my soul, as Nastir would say. It would have to be. It would have to be, yeah. Um, after, so, well, we're, you're yeah, the perfect guest to have on then, yeah. because this is, uh, you know, it's at least 50%, probably more, centered around Maddie Pryor, right? This is her mm -hmm. event in oh so many ways. I mean, well, I think in a manner of speaking, yeah. 
Right, right. It, not, not necessarily for the better, but so Inferno is, it's the culmination of kind of everything that's been happening in X-Men throughout the 80s. Like the, the build to this moment is fairly incredible. When you think about seeds that were planted years earlier, whether intentionally or not, regarding Ileana Rasputin, because there's kind of two threads to the event. There's it's the two, it's two storylines, story. yeah. Yeah, for sure. There's there's Madeline Pryor story, and there's the Ileana Rasputin magic story, right? And the magic stuff gets seeded very early in X-Men, right? When she, in mm-hmm. Uncanny yep. 160 82. By, by Claremont and Brian Anderson, she goes to the realm of, of uh, Belasco in Limbo, and we've, we've seen that story progress. She gets out of there, she's aged forward, yada yada, right? We, we've read through the 80s at this point. We kind of know her deal, and now she's in New Mutants, developing into what will become the Dark Child, right? This sort of good versus evil battle that she's been waging all this time to get to this point. And then Madeline Pryor's situation is kind of different because she shows up not too far off from when Eliana does, actually, in the 80s, but the intent behind her character changes drastically with the return of Jean Grey in 1986's X-Factor. Now, pretty famously, and this is something we talked about in X-Factor, writer Chris Claremont, obviously kind of the head of X around this time, was not into the idea of a, a resurrected Jean Grey when she died in the Dark Phoenix saga. This was something he wanted to stay permanent. Editor-in-chief Jim Shooter disagreed. We get the return of Jean in X-Factor, right? And this 89 Inferno event, after years of kind of building to this moment, is the way that Claremont attempts to retcon her origins, right? Who Madeline Pryor is. It was not always the intent for her to be this thing, which yeah. I don't know why I'm, what you know, walking around spoilers here she's is a clone of gene gray who was created by mr sinister to crossbreed the gray and summer's bloodlines and complete his eugenic project yeah it's exactly what she is <clears throat> and mr sinister gets his major his major label debut here in a very exciting way and and he's kind of yeah. everything that i think i wanted him to be you know, for a big story event, because obviously we've technically seen him. We hear him referenced in the Mutant Massacre. Well, but of course, the intent behind him is very different here, too, which we can get into from the character that you probably know him as now in the present. Oh, for sure. The, for sure. He also is everything I wanted Apocalypse to be mm. when we read Apocalypse and that Apocalypse wasn't uh, based on my like, you know, knowing that these are big deal characters and, you know, like capital V villains. And then Apocalypse kind of just was a, a little bit of a nothing oh, for me. And those are I'm quite I'm quite fond of Simonson's X Factor, so we may just not oh, need to talk oh, no. about it. <laughs> yeah, no, we'll, we'll we, no there there we'll will definitely be a fight yeah. there uh, between yes, the two of yeah. you, which which I yeah, will try I think, to do I my think best that's... to skirt around. But no, I, I think I hear what you're saying. But though, in Sinister terms of, just lands I think Sinister as the schemer in Inferno probably works better than Apocalypse as a schemer in Fall of the Mutants. Um, obviously, that's a more limited role. It is confined to X-Factor specifically, whereas Sinister's kind of reach here is like everything, you know, mutant-related. Yeah, um, well, I think that the the difference is Fall of the Mutants isn't really a crossover. No. It's, it's an, event an event that yeah. is three completely separate stories, and the X-Men story in Dallas is referenced in the other two, but... Apart from the fact that X Factor can't go help in Dallas because Apocalypse is attacking Manhattan, you know, it's things like the and the X Men can't help the New Mutants because they're in Dallas. Like it just keeps everybody apart, but the stories don't actually overlap. So yeah, Apocalypse only appears in the X Factor story, whereas here yeah. there are sort of two core architects of the drama, right? It's Sinister and Nastir who is a character that doesn't really get to have a long life outside of this event, but who I think is very, very memorable as written in these issues, both by Simonson and Claremont. Um, 
and their intentions are sort of in opposition with one another. And what I think is interesting about that is that if you look at this story, as you said, I mean, I consider this to be the climax of the 16-year Claremont era. Yeah. I yeah. think everything like that, that yeah. happens after it is... Now, not that he knew this because he didn't know he was going to get fired in 91, but if you look at it as a holistic 16-year thing, you have the first arc, which is he didn't write Giant Size, but he was an assistant on it, and then he writes starting in 94, mm-hmm. up through... 138 at the uh, the funeral issue for Gene mm-hmm. is sort of one complete storyline and then from there through to here is sort of a second storyline and there isn't really a third one because he set a bunch of things up and then he got fired yeah. so what I think is really interesting about the Sinister Nastir thing here and about Sinister generally is Sinister is almost like an editor right Mm. in this story he opens in the uncanny issue with a very memorable it characterizes him very quickly and it catches you up on who all these people are if you're just tuning in for the event because marvel had heavily advertised the event now if you're reading marvel comics in 1989 you're almost certainly reading uncanny x-men but you never know so it's good to he literally out. does do character profiles. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's holding like, up here statues. are who all these people are with my little <laughs> One chess, chess piece at a time. Yeah. Right. And he is the person who goes back and unveils all the retcons and messes with Mystere's plan and this, that, and the other thing. And as you said, you know, it's funny because Claremont had never wanted to kill Jean Grey in the first place. Shooter yeah. demanded that he kill Jean Grey. And then Shooter, over his objections, resurrected Jean Grey. And both times, it completely screwed up Claremont's plan. Mm -hmm. But the first time, it was sort of like, okay, we'll roll with it. The second time with X-Factor, it was much more difficult because his whole intention was to change the book entirely. Scott was supposed to go off into the West with Madeline and retire essentially from active superheroics. That was supposed to be a happy ending, relatively. And once he had to go to X Factor and had to be with Gene, which is all editorial, suddenly, in Claremont's opinion, the character was destroyed. I mean, that's what he's said many times. He feels the character is irredeemable from that point. And this entire event is a desperate effort on the part of Claremont and Simonson. You know, she's mostly handling the Ileana plot herself, but it seems to be based on... I have to imagine they were coordinating pretty closely on that because it builds out of his earlier material. Well, and she does do a surprising amount of Cyclops, Gene, and Sinister yeah. stuff by the end of this, which yes. I had kind of forgotten, yeah. which is yeah, it very does, interesting. It, the whole event focus... You forget kind of which, d- which issues are lap. in which book because it is really seamless. And you, if you yeah. read it as an event, they just pick up one after the next. So I, I think it was almost Hickman style, you know? They were yeah. collaborating for, like, very closely. The exterminators closely. and new mutants, which do feel a little bit like on their own adventure to a degree, I think. I mean, that that feels like, like table setting for the main event. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. But I was just going to say, you haven't read these before. How did this work in terms of like being feeling like a satisfying conclusion from all these things that have built up for you? Because it's a massive, Pro- massive event. I mean, it's a lot of reading. Like Connor said at the beginning, yeah. I do actually think it's yeah. better to binge this in large chunks. I, I do think it runs... Tight. It's it's surprisingly tight for how much there is. I suppose. What was your what was yeah. your first reaction? 
Yeah, I mean, wild amounts of plot. Like, an incredible amount of plot, but I, yeah. I think, yeah, it's surprisingly successful for how, like, it mainly stays on the, the rails for having so much going on. And it does feel coordinated, right? Unlike, like we've said, or like, um, like we pointed out with, um, the fall of the mutants, right? It does feel like one coordinated event. It feels like the first event we've really read. I feel like this does genuinely feel, maybe with the exception of Secret Wars 2, which, you know, we don't really want right. to give it that much credit, feels like the first big multi-line event that feels like one cohesive story with like little side stories weaving in and out of it. And, you know, but, but a main thrust to it and a beginning and an end. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, as, as an event, and this is probably a pitfall of more events, and I just haven't read that many, it does feel repetitive at times, right? Like they are rehashing the same plot points and the same lines and the same dynamics, character dynamics, but I think, you know, trying to like set the table in each issue, but that is also a, yeah. um, a result of me reading 18 or 19 issues in one day. So I can't hold that against it <laughs> sure. too, too much. It's, it's the previous but yeah, I, problem. I think for yeah. the, the wild amount of like developments and retcons and plot, I, I think it holds together pretty well and generally doesn't feel too, um, disjointed. Like th- there are details that fall by the wayside. Like I, I, I never go back and listen to Jay and Miles before we do this, but I did today for one of their six episodes, um, covering yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, the Inferno because there's so much going on. And just listening to them, I was like, I missed so much. There were so many little details that, you know, retcons and little story beats and stuff. So I, I do think, as always with Claremont, I do think, Sometimes the emotional beats don't work. Like, you have to meet him more than halfway to feel those emotional beats. Like, you have to already be invested and want to be feeling something, right? Like, he, because the bigger moments don't necessarily have time to breathe. They are kind of just, like, thrown at you and you have to be, like, um, you know, like, bringing your own uh, uh, pathos almost to it. But, uh, I think... I think if you're, yeah, I, I think, think if you're following well. along in the X first, though, I don't think that's true. Yeah, I couldn't disagree so more. <laughs> well, as, as, no, as, I mean, I think that balance. of all, I think that of most of all of Claremont's stuff, I think he just moves from one plot point to the next so rapidly that it is hard to be invested unless you are already like decided you are invested. I you know, just, like I, I think those emotional beats like don't have time. Rarely, I mean, there are exceptions, right? We've had moments where it's like three pages dedicated to a scene is rare. Well, but that's Claremont. because that wasn't a thing that people did in comics at that time. I mean, like, the decompressed well, storytelling you're talking about is a much more modern form. Not necessarily. I mean, there, there are other other comics that were doing this at the time. I mean, that, that's just not Claremont. And that's well, not Claremont no, style. but I'm, but in terms of, like, a superhero book, what do you mean by three pages on, a, like, on one conversation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there have been other authors who have been doing this in Spider-Man and Captain America, Daredevil. That's, I suppose that's true. Demetrius does stuff like that. I mean, yeah, Demetrius is um, one. What I would say is, but I, I don't know. I just find that to be an. I mean, yes, there's a lot of plot. He throws a lot of stuff at you, but the emotional point you're making, I just find really fascinating because what Claremont revolutionized in the medium was the soap opera plot, was the emotional investment in the characters, was that ongoing feeling that you really really care about these people and to me i mean i i reread this and i've read this event 50 times maybe i mean i madeline Pryor is my favorite comic book character so that's the well and this is her story yeah yeah, with number one with a bullet so that's the context (laughs) here um well that's what I'm, i was thinking that actually because i was like if i reread this if i feel like this is a comic you would reread and every time you would probably you find get something, something more new. out of it yeah but i don't know if that's 
necessarily a strength. Like, I can't put that in the pro column, for me at least, right? That's not something that I'm, like, looking for, where I'm just like, it's oh. so dense that, of course, I'm going to be missing stuff and no. want to, like, it's not, revisit and it's not revisit that, and revisit. It's not that dense. dense. In terms of being, yeah, like, complicated. <laughs> there's you know, I mean, there's a lot. I mean, that, there's I, a lot I, I happening, you guys, but it's well, not Well, here's my question. Do you guys, have you guys read, like, all of Uncanny X-Men, or are you just hopping events no. and stuff? So in the We're club list yeah. specifically, like, we are hopping from core issues so so like readers don't have to have read everything to keep up with us that said i highly recommend it but if you haven't read it before zach are you reading it because i will say this event would be very confusing if you haven't read it's not confusing i I know what's happening like i I understand i I meant emotionally actually if you haven't followed madeline from fall of the mutants where she is extremely heroic to Mm -hmm. here through, with the outback issues that are in the middle, I think it would feel very emotionally abrupt. Whereas one of Claremont's very best issues, period, in the whole run, is the issue where she accidentally sells her soul. And it's this dream sequence that you might like because mm-hmm. it's uh, one scene that goes on for many, many, many pages. I think and we, have, we have actually read that one. Oh, you yeah. have? Yeah. Okay, great. I'm yeah, not trying yeah. to be rude. I just What I'm saying is like, I, I, I could see if you're jumping around that it would be difficult. But at the same time, I picked up this trade when I was a kid and I cried when Ileana mm. sacrifices herself. See, I... that, that, that moment landed for me really well. And I just feel like for every moment that I think landed for me the way that he probably intends it to, there were two that kind of just went by, uh-huh. you know, it, it, without the, the emotional punch because I, I do feel like it was moving from one thing to the next to the next, no, which is fair. Claremont, He's you know, and, it, and it's like, for sure. if it's... you are not, if you're not on that wavelength and I am often not, you know, that's that's how it goes. But I mean, Storm and Jean, they're reunite. Yeah, that's a beautiful here. moment. The first time like that really got me. That was that was like an excellent moment. And then, yeah, Ileana, like the end of Ileana's arc here. Um, and even, you know, the reveal of her being de-aged back to a child. Yeah, that's uh, what I that cried, really worked yeah. for me as, as a shock. Right. Like that felt like a really like powerful moment that had built up properly and had the, you know, like the, the build up to have that payoff. I do also love in that particular scene. So we're, let's back it up a second because there's a lot. I'm sorry. I don't know your format. My podcast is very free form. So if you want to go chronological or whatever, like, please stop me. There's too much. Yeah. So just, you know, (laughs) there's too much for us to cover. We go free form, but I do want to, I do want to cover the beat here. So let's, let's cover one thread at a time. And let's say, all right, let's cover Madeline Pryor's arc, okay? Let's talk what what exactly happens here with Maddie. So she goes from this uh, dead ringer for Jean Grey. Everyone's like, hey, it's kind of weird how much she looks like Jean. Scott's like, yeah, don't worry about it. They get married. They have a baby, little baby Nathan Christopher. Who and isn't named until here, actually. Which I think Do we not fun. see Nathan until here? I wondered about that. Nope. Yeah. yeah. Because yeah, Nathan okay. is Sinister's episode name, and I was which won't right, be revealed yeah. until much later. Right, because we don't. Right, we don't even officially know that in the comics yet. Okay, yeah, it's retcon on retcon here. Um, but so they they have a baby together, but then that all gets separated, gets blown up for a myriad of reasons. One of which is Scott just bails essentially, right? Yeah. And that is the piece that you were talking about, Connor, in terms of like destroying the character. And this still gets brought up today. I bring it up myself that like Scott was a horrible husband and a horrible father, and he kind of gets a potential out, like or at least Claremont's trying to give him an out here in terms of sinister. Mr. Sinister having manipulated him, Madeline Pryor, who it turns out is a clone, Sinister created from Jean Grey's DNA, um, and basically everyone around them into the actions that they took all to get to this point, um, essentially, although it kind of doesn't go 
the way Sinister plans with the no. full amount of goblins and demons and things that are that are in the <laughs> sure, works here, yeah. right? So it's like there's a lot of variables he didn't account for. Um, but it, the out that I actually do not remember being here was Claremont effectively saying, like, Scott, those choices weren't choices. They were calculations Which, that Sinister, ugh. you know, forced upon you. Does, does this event work in terms of giving Scott Summers that out? Because I don't know that, like, historically it's gone that way. But it, No, I and yeah, I don't, I don't yeah. think we're... I, I, here's the thing. The, what you just said about the demons and all of that, that's sort of what I was trying to get at earlier, and I didn't complete my point, I guess, because I got distracted. But the idea that Sinister and Nasir have two storylines that they're each trying to do, and the storylines are in conflict, mm-hmm. which to me feels very Claremont and Shooter on some level. Yeah. And part of that is... Chris Claremont is trying here, and I actually think Simonson is trying more uh, because it matters more for her book that Scott not be a complete mm. piece of. <laughs> can I swear yeah. on this podcast? Yeah. Sure, okay. uh, I'll bleep it. But okay, yeah, you can a don't do too much. Piece of garbage, <laughs> let's say. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Claremont is trying to make it okay that all of this happened but you can tell reading it that claremont is also pissed that the story has been pushed in this direction and so i think that what's most interesting about it is even when she is driven to madness and decides to murder her own child to end the world Mm -hmm. reading it to this day i can't help but think you know she has a point yeah, she's very sympathetic. Yeah, yeah. and I mean, th- throughout, yeah. that feels alien to what the intent of the event was, which is mm. editorial said, she's got to go. Because at this point, Claremont had made her almost the viewpoint character in Uncanny X-Men, had made lemonade out of the lemons and was like, all right, she'll be their Lois Lane or Sue Dibney. She'll be their friend who doesn't have powers, who helps out. Yeah, And then, it, you know, it comes on from editorial, no... Gene and Scott are together, Madeline has to go, and she has to be a bad guy, then it feels like Claremont sort of says, all right, well, then you're gonna, you're never going to take me alive. Like, I'm going to make you feel like mm-hmm. by the end of this event for making me do this to this lovable character. Mm-hmm. And I think that the sinister of it all is complicated because, again, it comes down to and I don't know if, if it's cool to talk about this, but who Claremont intended Mr. Sinister to be, which is very different from who Mr. Sinister ended up being. Mm-hmm. Like post this event? Yes. Like by okay. other writers who created his backstory. When Claremont cre- and Silvestri created Mr. Sinister, the idea was Nathan, you know, Madeline says, you hated the name Nathan, I remember, because it was the name of the bully from the orphanage. Mm-hmm. And In Claremont's design, Mr. Sinister and Gambit, actually, who doesn't exist yet, but who was supposed to be also part of this plot, were the psychic projections of an eternal mutant child who had been at the orphanage with Scott. And that's why they are so over the top and why Mr. Sinister looks like a boogeyman rather than a character that sort of makes sense existing. Mm. Can we we just take just a hot second to say his design is beautiful oh it like, is but one it's of my go- one of my campy fav- as hell it's yeah, so over yeah. the top but it is it is one of the best like immediately the guy makes such an a good impression just because of that design that design and oh that it's cape brilliant yeah incredible. and similarly yeah, yeah. i think the okay. goblin queen design is very, indelible very the second you see it 
that yeah. first okay, issue. Yeah, sorry to, no, sorry it's to okay. derail. That first <laughs> issue where she and Alex are at the Rainbow Room, or no, it's the second issue, but where she and Alex are at the Rainbow Room in Rockefeller Center, and in every panel, her dress is a different black dress, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm, yeah. And sure, then yeah. every now and then it turns into the Goblin Queen regalia, and you're just like, Unremarked. this design is incredible. And that they don't say a word about it, right? No. It's just one panel. He doesn't even yeah, notice. It's it's right. Great. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. shouts to Havoc and for how does he off not the same outfit that. later yeah. in the event. Yeah. Does does literally the same outfit. Well, that was a real gay awakening prince. moment for me, and maybe why I've read this event in part <laughs> I mean, five hundred times. It's, it's, yeah. It's yeah, some it's good. Look. Yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting to be putting the male characters in that kind of like feminine sexualized gear. Yeah. Like. In, in a way that we haven't really seen. Even the poses that's, that's he usually... strikes, I think, too. Well, you know, and stuff you yeah. when you other, read the you know, tie-ins, books. I imagine Excalibur will be part of that, right? Yep, Because mm-hmm. Brian yeah. Braddock ends up in a very similarly sexualized yeah. mm. mode that is very interesting. Uh, and that's also Claremont. Mm. And that's Alan Davis, who loves drawing beefcake. So mm-hmm. it's uh, mm. Alan Davis draws the sexiest man of any straight comic book artist I've ever seen. I mean, they are truly mm. he, he doesn't, <laughs> he's not afraid to make them sex objects also in yeah. the way that and, the and women not, are. No. Um, yeah, okay. So let, let's get back to a little bit about Maddie's story to here. Maddie, um, I, so I find Cyclops essentially unforgivable after X-Factor 1. It is right. a huge third rail for me. On uh, my podcast episode about Cyclops, Jay Edidin actually was my guest, and we talked about uh, Jay's interpretation of Cyclops as autistic, and how Mm. truly they just didn't understand each other in that conversation. And that's really the only way that you can get him out of it, because (laughs) this doesn't doesn't get him out of it. And I don't think... you feel like they want to to give him the pass, and they're like desperate, like an, an entire issue of trying to get him a pass for this. And by the end, I'm just like, one, no, it doesn't work. But also, it's less interesting. Like it's fine that Cyclops screwed up. Like I want to see his redemption. Yeah, I don't want to see him having like you know, ah, you were brainwashed into being awful. And that's, well, and I don't think you know, that's what it forgiven. says though. I mean, I don't think that the I don't think he left his wife because Sinister made him leave his wife. Yeah, so I, I don't really know why it is trying to like bring him back to be there's a the, danger you know, to sinister as like an eternal retcon engine you know this thing yeah. where he's like he controlled yeah. literally everything that i think they they kind of toy at here but then fortunately like that doesn't get cemented because the idea that sinister has literally controlled like then it's like well then cyclops has no free will and these experts yeah i don't think we're like supposed to take controlled. it that literally i also think we're yeah. not supposed to view sinister as an entirely reliable narrator because mm, of fair, the yeah. intent that i'm talking about and also because there's a very important moment early in this event, relatively early, which is when Madeline learns about what where she came from. And right. Sinister thinks he has absolutely everything under control. Mm-hmm. And he puts her in his machine and whatever, and she overloads it almost effortlessly. It's one of the most beautiful Mark Silvestri pages ever drawn, where it's just her face and she sort of screams and the energy spills out i won't be ruled by you i won't be condemned by you i don't belong to you what price glory now sinister that is one of the other moments that i find very emotional but only if you care about madeline Pryor, because it's a very triumphant moment i find it to be very moving even even that issue builds up to that it does the entire issue is building and this arc this whole arc is built up to that really nicely because he's like here's my amazing monologue about how i created you and did this whole and she's like screw you i don't care like actually 
I mean, she cares in the sense that the knowledge drives her insane, but she refuses to play his game any longer. And I think that what's interesting about the way it weaves in and out of um, Uncanny and X Factor and rereading it, I was particularly struck by it this time is. And it's actually this is really well timed because I was working on my Jean Grey episode while when you guys invited me to do this so i had to reread inferno anyway because i had to explain to people why i don't like gene gray and it's because of inferno Hmm. and uh it's really interesting i mean i i grow to like her again but much like cyclops she's sort of on my 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 no fly list for a while after no that's not good either because i feel like that has a weird connotation you you can swear i'll just i'm just gonna bleep it she's on my she's on my (laughs) no-go list for a while after this and it's because claremont to me doesn't seem like he wants to exonerate Scott in these issues at all. But Simonson feels like she does. And so there's a very interesting shift between the way the characters talk about Madeline in the uncanny issues and the way that they talk about her in the X factor issues. And the thing that's most justification for Scott is in X factor. And it's after Maddie is dead. And Gene gives this whole monologue about how Madeline wasn't real. Madeline was a trap that was created based on Scott's love for Gene. Everything Scott ever felt for Madeline was actually about Gene. And Mr. Sinister used Madeline because it's all about Gene. And none of it was real. And it was all a living lie. And that is what I think is is maybe putting your teeth on edge a little because it's what puts my teeth on edge. I find that to be an unsatisfying explanation. I find it to be um I find it to just be incorrect. And the only way I can view it as someone who's read the story beforehand is to say, well, Jean Grey is a bit of a megalomaniac and just can't. She's just a bit of a narcissist and can't look at this event without thinking it's all about me when it's not it's about madeline you know gene was dead for most of this well i guess she wasn't this is the problem with the retcons right? i guess she wasn't yeah. right right i mean i think i think to gene's credit in that regard it would be extremely strange to oh, have an exact she's violated replicant. by the whole thing yeah. yes and it is sure. an exact clone of her from dna that was stolen from her right so i think it yeah she right does, after she makes she's gotten past the belief that this alien being also cloned her and stole her identity so yes I get it's a lot. Yeah, she's two, a lot two different Jean Grey clone, Jean Grey clones happening yeah. in this arc in, in different, entirely different separate circumstances. Yeah, but I, yeah. I think Jean's to Jean's point there. The thing that I like that you highlighted there is it denying Madeline realness or sort of personhood is that's kind of an ongoing thing, um, and that I think becomes the biggest problem because it sort of denies like okay, those three years you know or whatever they were in publication terms that she spends with Scott. It sort of makes it like well, that wasn't real. That was this fantasy, and it's like. No, those were those were real comics and those were real years and real and stories they were good. That we all spent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they were interesting, right? And and Madeline here, you know, she is you mentioned like she's broken by this, but she's also been kind of building to this in a way, you know, like you said, she makes the deal with Nastier and the demons here before learning this information from Mr. Sinister that she is a clone, right? Right. Now whether she, she did so intentionally and would have gone this far is is up for debate, but she like there's a movement in that direction it's for her. Well, I think there's a parallel with Ilyana because in Uncanny earlier before this, what initially happens is Sim tricks her, Madeline, yeah. in a dream, and she sells him her soul, essentially. And then once she's done that, she starts sort of slowly curdling until mm-hmm. she's at a point where she's like, All right, Nastir, like let's make a deal. And I think that like Belasco's corruption of Ilyana, 
it's something that she does without understanding what she's doing. In her case, she thought she was dreaming. In Ilyana's case, Ilyana was a child. And but once she's once you've allowed the demon in, you start to lose control of yourself. And it's interesting when it's collected like this, you don't get the Genosha arc, mm-hmm. which comes right before this, right. where mm-hmm. Madeline is kidnapped and imprisoned on Genosha yeah. and realizes that she has powers for the first time. And it's after she's sold her soul to Sim, but before she's made a bargain with Mystere. Yeah. And in that arc, she feels very empowered. And then what's interesting about this story is the way Nastir is initially presented, not in the New Mutants issues, but in the issues with Madeline, is like he's her henchman. But it becomes very clear very quickly through his thought bubbles and whatnot. I do miss thought bubbles in uh, modern comics. We don't really use them anymore. But the dramatic irony of her being like, I will feed you to my pets, Nastir, and like this and that. And he's just like, you are an idiot and I have full control of you. And I think that you know, yeah, she's game. She has done the bad things, but the there's a question of agency. I think it's different from some other stories in this mold, like Dark Phoenix, which obviously it's referencing at certain points. I think that throughout Dark Phoenix, apart from the mastermind sequences, which are very similar to the dream sequence with Sim in Uncanny, Jean has agency in the Dark Phoenix saga. Jean decides to become Dark Phoenix. Jean mm-hmm. decides to eat that star. Jean decides to do these things. It's not an infection that she allows into herself without knowing. And I think that that is what is difficult for me about Madeline's arc. It doesn't feel like she has the ability to choose once she's been set on the roller coaster. And yeah. the realness question is the is the relevant one because is she just a vessel for sinister's intention and then for demons or is she a real person capable of her own decision making and her own choices and i think that this this is a what's tragic about this story is that all she wants is to assert herself as a real person deserving of dignity who has been wronged by these people and by the end of it they've all decided well, it turns out she wasn't real at all. You know, I mean, that is sort of the the takeaway at the end to the point and where Jean absorbs people... her psyche and memories. Yeah, well, I mean, I th- people reach out to her, though. You know, there are moments they where try. other yeah. other people reach out to her and, and do, you know, try to like, d- despite her, you know, standing on top of this miles high demon empire state building and trying to sacrifice her own <laughs> son. You know, that Jean Grey is still making, you know, some kind of, um, you know, like, outreach to her. And she, I, I, you know, she is too damaged and hurt and just, you know, like, I, I think, you know, gone and at that point. But but it is not, you know, I, I don't think it feels, it doesn't feel like a damnation of Madeline Pryor in those moments. It does feel like, you know, this, this thing that was done to her, which I, I think is interesting and the saving grace of that story yeah i think it's worth it'd be much less interesting if she just if she was just a villain well yeah and claremont clearly wasn't willing to do that i mean i think that what's interesting though about gene what you mentioned is gene does not become empathetic and reach out until she knows madeline's a clone of her and Mm, then she changes tune quickly whereas early in the event she's like this is all your fault scott because of her why did you marry that woman why are we looking for Mm. your child because you married that woman like she's truly 
because in X Factor, I mean, the thing that really got my goat about Jean leading into this event is the way she speaks about Madeline in X Factor, which is really... Well, they, I mean, they talk, yeah, right. Despicable, I mean, frankly, like after Fall I mean, of the it, it in is, particular. You could read it in that way of, you know, like that the, the person you're with did something awful and you just need to rationalize that they're a good person, right? Like you don't, you don't want to I guess, say that you're real. dating, yeah, you know, and a but, monster because Cyclops is clearly the, the monster for abandoning right, and, <laughs> Madeline and, and the baby and, you know, you know. You, maybe she doesn't want to Well, Madeline does that, the same so she, thing because she turns all of her, most of her anger on Jean Grey instead of Scott. Right, because like blaming Gene for Scott's actions. In I many don't ways. agree, actually. I think no? I, I, think I noticed that, that a lot in in her dialogue. In her it's rage, complicated. I think that what the way it's enacted is is different. She with Scott. She it's all about Scott in the sense that when she decides, yes, I'm going to sacrifice my child. That's all about Scott. That has nothing to do with Gene. Yeah. With Gene, it's about specifically trying to erase the things that make Gene real and Madeline not real. So she blows yeah. up the headstone. She transforms Gene's parents. Yeah. It's like a it's, very, it's very specifically, you have all these things that I don't have and I'm going to take them from you. But the rage f- is more directed at Scott, in my opinion. It's just, I mean, what's, what's really, you know, I was a classics major. This is really just Medea, right? You know, in a lot of ways. And yeah. so, like in Medea, the woman that Jason has chosen instead is more a vector for the anger. So, like, Medea kills that woman, but only to make Jason hurt. Yeah, sure, sure. That's you fair. know? Yeah, so getting to the kind of the end of her sequence here, like you mentioned, you know, there's a there's a battle, there's a war essentially between her, Madeline, and Jean Grey. Um, it results in, like you mentioned, Jean Grey. So Madeline disappears essentially. She basically she finally is given some sort of choice here, um, although how much agency she has there, I guess, is, is debatable. But Jean absorbs her psyche, and basically this is like this is the part of the event that feels the most like. A fix straightening it. out continuity, yeah. you know, in in a way that I think is often distasteful. And I think it's one thing Inferno does really well is there's a lot of like, hey, let's make this continuity make sense in now and in the future. That doesn't feel too heavy handed. I think DC is guilty of this a lot with like Crisis on Infinite Earths and post-crisis stuff. Mm-hmm. I think Zero Hour famously, right, where it's like this is an event about yeah. continuity. Um, but this yes, specific yeah. thing is like, yeah, we're going to give her Madeline's memories so that in a way like those those, those comics you did enjoyed, happen. Ma- right. Yeah. yeah and those Madeline's comics did not happen. Gone. But now they're part of Jean's story. It's very complicated and messy. And again, to your point, it erases Madeline. Right. Know, as it, someone who cares about Jean. Madeline, I find it gross because Jean has done nothing but say horrible things about her for issues upon issues. And now they're like, well, it's fine. Be- it all turns out okay because now Madeline's part of Jean. And I'm like, no, she isn't. She was a real person. That's what yeah. That's what I'm left yeah. with, the frustration of at the end of the event. It's very neat. It's a very neat way to tie it up. But it's clear... And- yeah. It's clear to me that other writers, that other readers had this issue with it because writers in the 90s basically retcon the ret, you know, they, they oh, Madeline yeah. Oh, yeah. turns back up and and is clearly not someone who was entirely absorbed by Gene because there is something very off-putting about the notion that for the ease of editorial comfort or whatever we're just going to sublimate this woman entirely into her romantic rival who has no who has had no respect for her (laughs) yeah exactly it does the entire event to me at least the claremont end of it the the madeline prior end of it does feel like claremont saying like fine fine like 
all the stuff that happened in X Factor that I didn't want to have happen, like, fine, I'm going to deal with it. Right. Right. Like, yes. I'm going to fold this in. I'm going to neaten it up. I'm going to take it. And I, I, I issue some issues aside, like with Madeline, that I, I do agree with although you know I, I don't think i have the same fondness as well you. no this like, is I, i'm telling you this I, is I this is why he asked me to do this episode because i'm very yeah, very yeah. biased um, i don't know no, that anyone I, has I, the I same fondness that. and, I and no judgment point. but yeah. having her as your number one character is is an anomaly well yeah. it's yeah, I, when i, I that say point, that but... she's only been in what 40 issues so it's a different yeah. thing from the characters who are my perennial favorites but in terms of the and character honestly, i get I... most agitated and excited and, and need to talk about for hours on end. She, she really, and she really did yeah. not feel like much of a character in more of a plot point until like the Outback stuff. Well, the Outback maybe, stuff is know, where like, she really blossoms beca- because she really was the like, Oh weird. She's a, she's Jean Grey, huh? Like something's weird there. Like she's just like Jean Grey. And that was like, well, how but she initially existed. that's just mastermind. They don't actually look right. that much alike. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. That's so like she's, she's, yeah. Anyway. So I, I, I I appreciate Claremont pulling this in. I, I liked that he finally kind of like squared that circle and kind of kind of gave a a, a, a nice unification of all these disparate plot lines um, here. And can can we I, do we have anything else to talk about for it, we could Pryor? keep going, but let's jump to the magic because I want to jump to, and, and to all Simonson the Louise Simonson stuff um, because there's let's let's talk about those two things because we are getting a little long in the tooth uh, see the this here. is what happens when you invite me on your podcast my podcast zach if you haven't listened is regularly like two to three hours it's, this, uh, this, it's a this beast happens, it's a beast especially when you're discussing beast with uh with spencer ackerman that was a great episode that was a good one wasn't it he's coming back soon <laughs> awesome awesome all right zach, already by the time you hear this yeah awesome right yeah so this will be coming out in uh in january 2021 so all right so iliana her story here is is the full transformation to the dark child which we have seen we have seen progressing again like at the end of fall of the mutants we see signs where the death of doug ramsey sets her off in terms of like just that rage and that anger really really channeling her in this direction there's a whole lot of stuff going on in stolen childhood and you know, the, the being tainted against her will, right? And like all these that that she has been turned into this dark child against her. Mm-hmm. You know, like a, as a child, it's all it's all like done to her. I think one thing that the Louise Simonson in particular does really well in New Mutants is she kind of does a retcon. I don't know if that's the right word for it, but she kind of like reinvigorates the the um the stealing of Ileana in limbo by making a, a more clear allegory about like sim as a demon like tormenting and and probably abusing well, and as, a rapist, as a child specifically yeah. like that the language yeah. and the 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 visuals of the it, fact that she won't let rain watch what's about to happen i think is exactly. very important yeah yeah, yeah that, i don't that think was that really was there like... previously and that makes it a lot more stomach churning and it, not that it wasn't already right it's already right. a six-year-old in in it, hell essentially um yeah. but it really hits in a way that i think i don't think you get that as effectively stomach churning without like a female writer was, on the book that's i think the that's thing. more perspective it is easy the... not to think about before yeah I, I think like it was easy to just be like oh wow she's she aged up five years right. that's crazy what what a, what a trauma and then you know, we're now now she's just part of the new mutants. Because even in the four issue Magic Mini that that Claremont and um and the rest of the creative team do, like I don't necessarily know that okay. it's ever well, as so so go back because it's yeah. there, but it's okay. subtle. It's okay. subtle in that way that Claremont's sec. It's funny because we think of Claremont as this very overtly sexual writer, and he is in a lot of ways. But yeah. when it's something that is, frankly, when it's homosexuality or sexual violence, he tends mm. to get a little bit more careful with it in part because yeah. shooter was very 
tricky about that stuff, to say the least. Oh, yes. Yeah, so, no, no, so, um, no gays in Marvel. Yeah, the no gays in Marvel rule, for yeah. example. But yeah. he, except for the gay rapist that Shooter himself wrote in an issue of The Hulk. Great guy. Love mm-hmm. that. Love yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Old Jim. Um, but uh, <laughs> the thing that happens and i'm laughing because i i'm annoyed not because that's funny no obviously no. that's not no, funny I'm... just just to be yes, clear no, we, we all have videos nowhere. so we can tell but for the listeners um yes, yes. so yeah it's there with belasco is the thing the implication that belasco is a predator who sort of takes this girl yeah uh, in her pajamas it's there it's less overt though and i think that giving the character to a female writer who then looked at the material, it's much stronger here. And I think that the way that it's coached in a conversation between the two female characters throughout the story, because it's Rain representing a sort of naivete and innocence about sex in particular. And Ilyana, who thinks of herself as spoiled like despoiled and ruined because of this Mm -hmm. thing that happened to her it becomes a very overt allegory for childhood sexual abuse for sexual trauma in uh the new mutants movie recently which i didn't care for they changed her backstory to take the demons out and made it a a sex trafficking thing and people were like where did that come from like well actually that's that's in it i mean that's in the comic you know but it's it's just it's veiled in the comic in this sort of mystical thing. It has been pointed out, and I think this is a valid criticism, that the resolution of the Ilyana arc here, where the only way to cleanse yourself of back, that back to innocence is to, like, you know, erase your life and regress to before mm-hmm. the assault the virginal happened. state, right? Yeah, yeah. is is reclaim rough. your purity. I right, don't yeah. think that's what Simonson intended, but I do think that that implication is is a little unfortunate. In general, sure. I think it's yeah. a very moving story. I think Ilyana, who has been struggling with her nature as an evil thing because yeah. of what happened to her in Limbo, literally like selling her soul, she has an, an evil inside her that she can't deny. It's just true. It's like on Buffy, how they're like, they're demons, you know, like they can't, she's she's lost that humanity. And to affirmatively choose i mean she's the character with maybe the most agency in this story right. uh, in the end because she affirmatively makes a choice when she sees that younger self and is repulsed but then also says you know what i'm going to die and i'm going to save my friends and i'm going to give you a chance to to avoid what happened to me right and yeah, i think so, that, so Liana does know, take on the full dark child personality here but kind of the the thing about that is like my assumption reading these the first time was okay she's gonna become this demonic version evil's gonna win and that is what is going to lead all of the demons to invade earth right Mm -hmm. and what really happens instead is like they kind of already get there she actually lets a lot of them through accidentally like just trying to save her friends trying to save the new mutants no it's your trickster yeah, she gets right. She gets tricked. And um, so once they're already there, then it's like, okay, now this transformation to evil, it's like, well, what does that get her? She's not leading the events, essentially. Um, so it, it instead becomes this choice between you can choose evil and just kind of roll with this, which is right. a Manhattan infested with demons, or you can kind of finally, like, essentially choose good, which is, you know, to put it in very simple terms, save your younger self. Because initially when she sees there's a version, because Limbo is messing with time and space right. and timey-wimey, there's a version of her pre 
basically being stolen, like a like six year old girl. And she sees this girl, and her initial reaction is like she wants to kill her. Yeah, like she lashes out, presumably out of like jealousy and rage and, and just all the feelings and emotional trauma that would bring up. Um, but she she sees her, and then her ultimate decision is she saves the new mutants. She stops the demonic invasion by by surrendering her power. She basically gives her own life, and in doing so, it doesn't seem this way initially. But what is revealed is that within her armor that she fully had manifested this dark child armor, she saves the young six year old Ileana Rasputin. So we get this kind of incredible scene of Colossus, her brother God, Peter Rasputin. So beautiful. Uh, with the I, art. I really love Brett Blevins yeah. Yeah, styling really of, See, of Colossus. I'm usually here. not a big Blevins guy, but I, like I this love it in Inferno. This is yeah. the peak. I love the stuff he's doing. These it's three like, issues are so to good. me the peak of both Blevins's art on that title and of Simonson's writing on that title. And I, I, I just think, because here's yeah. here's what I think is interesting. You talked. I listened a little bit to the epi- the most recent episode as we're recording this, which was mm-hmm. about the launch of Excalibur. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And you talked about how Claremont had done an AMA, and there was a yeah. uh, a bit of a of a stir about the AMA because of an answer he gave about Ilyana Rasputina that was like, "Well, she's fundamentally an evil person," and yeah. that's what that story was about to me. And I think that what's interesting about this arc under Simonson is I believe this was probably an a story arc that they discussed together you know what I'm saying and that this this was in part you know the end game that he had planned for the character but the beats that she gives it in Inferno are very different what she does is affirm through essentially Rain's belief and faith in Ilyana as a good person yeah that Ilyana is not evil that Ilyana is much like Madeline, a person who something terrible has been done to and who mm-hmm. has been corrupted by a dark force that has invaded her and makes the opposite choice from the one that Madeline makes. And I think that the parallel that's interesting that's drawn is that no one gives up on Ilyana. Right. Except for... Yeah. Roberto, because that's kind of his gig, right? Yeah, yeah, yes, right, yes, yes, I forgot about that. But the rest of them, they they can't, and they won't. And it feels like for Madeline, only Alex is really willing to to fully go to bat for her. And and her brother's there, right? Which is a big moment. Like, he crosses over into those issues, and that's, you know... It emphasizes that Ileana has a family that loves her and cares about her, and Madeline doesn't have a family, and that... (laughs) Yeah, that's that's an interesting you know? person. Yeah, and yeah. she doesn't have those attachments because even Alex, like he's Scott's brother, she can't. And all of these people, like Storm, is Jean's best friend. She can't claim any of these people, even though she's spent years now with them as their compatriot. But none of them. The second that Storm sees Jean on television, it's all about Jean. And I'm not saying that to criticize Aurora because Aurora is the one who for the longest time in the event is like, we have to rescue Madeline. Whatever Nasir's done to her, it can't be her fault. Um, But I I think that from Madeline's perspective, she's an imitation to all of them. Like none of that, you know, at the beginning when she does read Alex's mind, when she's coming out of the Firebird in the Outback and she says to, you know, and she's like, it's only me as though she's, and he's like, oh, I, I didn't realize I was speaking loud. And she's like, oh, wouldn't it be funny if I could read minds? He's like, ha ha. But she makes the direct comparison. She knows they all think of her at all times and have since they met her 
in relation to Jean, how she's different from Jean, how she's similar to Jean. She's never been allowed to be her own person, whereas Ilyana is a singular person who these people love and who they have gone out of their way and gone through literal hell to try to save. One of the things that you get in this event is the reprise sort of of those beats from the Magic and Storm miniseries where she shows the new mutants the corpses of the X-Men who died to try to save her when she was a child. And remembering Mm. that clearly is part of what goes into her thought process and her decision-making process in the end, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it is an interesting resolution for her as a character because it it takes a very interesting new mutant off the board, right? And and I think that's not for Yeah, I I know that's like a a critique, right? Is that like, Ileana is now not a... Uh, you know, right, not a real character adult, anymore. I think right, it was yeah. necessary because of the pivot that's coming with New Mutants. Mm-hmm. You'll notice that the two characters they take off the board in the next year or so are Ilyana and Danny. And I think it's because those are the two characters that would not have been into the cable thing. Yeah, no, it's it's a, it's a shift that they are not necessarily a fit for, well those Ileana characters would be pretty fit. interesting Ileana would never listen <laughs> to him look at how she deals she with Magneto after Doug right. dies you know oh, she would have stood up to him constantly yeah absolutely. she wouldn't have listened and if you're going to turn these characters into no a paramilitary squad Ilyana's not a not a soldier don't, like don't go too far down this path because I, I won't be able to yeah we, we won't okay. spoil anything okay we'll also, stop I, I don't know, I don't you know, know what Cable is you know what X-Force is right how how new to Marvel are you I'm asking I have not I have not read anything between now and 2000. Yeah, you, okay. haven't read, like, you haven't read Cable stuff. So we'll shout. Yeah, yeah. While you, you mentioned him, shouts to Magneto Kate. for standing on the roof and fighting off demons with the Hellfire Club for this whole event. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> that, uh-huh. that was pretty entertaining. Okay, can, can we? I, I really want to get to Louise Simonson. Here. Sure. And because she's doing New Mutants, she's doing. She writes the majority of this. She's event, doing the heavy lifting. Honestly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she, she's yeah, writing it's New Mutants and X Factor. Yeah. And Exterminators. And Exterminators. Yeah. Four, well, right. four issues of So in the trade I have, the Exterminators mini is not included, but you're right. She was also writing Exterminators. Okay. So. I, I I feel like I, I need to I need to have like a little mea culpa for <laughs> Louise Simonson because I think I think everything that because I, I have called X Factor the worst comic we've read in my Marvel here and I stand by that. I think the, the <laughs> X Factor that we've okay. read is pretty bad. I don't what did you think read? it's her. The the stuff with what like you'd expect. I mean the the, <laughs> the the mutant hunting stuff and the, the mutant massacre stuff which uh, just lands so far. Well, well the mutant hunting stuff things, that Bob uh, Layton gave intro. her that. She fixed it by retconning yes. Hodge into a bad guy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think <laughs> she inherited it. Seeing yeah. her on other stuff and watching her do X Factor, I think I think she's a good writer, obviously. And I think I think my problem with X Factor is Walt Simonson's art because I think oh, wow. like I think it just uh, even even someone who doesn't love his Thor art, I I think like it is night and day the difference here. And I think the this X Factor issues with the exception of X Factor 39, the last one he does here. I actually think he steps way up and I would be like, I kind of bet money that maybe he all of a sudden had less on his plate or something. He was able to put more time into it because there's a huge difference between 39 and literally everything else we've read. I, I think the, those other comics are just kind of a mess to look at and like they just are... Interesting. I, I don't know. Like I look I at the think a mess is, a mess is such an interesting... They're considered pretty iconic. There. I mean, he's... I know yeah, they, they are. are. Yeah. I, I feel it, it is the most crazy I feel reading other people talk about this because <laughs> yeah. it, it just like i look at these and i'm like how do people look at these pages and just say like this is dynamic comic writing this is clear visual storytelling you're and on just you're think, on simonson slander because, island like this is a i mean i'm one. more of a sylvester guy in terms of like yeah, the oh. two main artists on this 
on this uh, event, but I think that the Simonson art on X Factor is really fluid and gorgeous. I mean, oh, particularly I in I, that apocalypse arc that you seem to have hated, which I, yeah. I think it's yeah, stunning. I, and it is it is really rooted in in his his artwork there. I just I think it is. I mean, some some of it is aesthetic. Some of it is purely like listen. I don't, I like, don't like Chris Bocciolo. Right. Yeah, I some, just some don't. Of it is the look and of it, I think but he's, I, I he's also a perfectly think good that, artist, but I don't like sure. it. Sometimes you just don't I, like. I really art. think that like some of it is just that like oh these these panels are not like cohesively uh exhibiting an action you know in, in a, a clear-eyed way to me because we switched to rob liefeld this is the first rob liefeld we, we did get our club, first and i was just like oh man finally like a, a, you know an, an artist on x factor that uh that is not like hard for me to look at which is a you wild fully thing fully lost your mind but i not not <laughs> You know what? I, I have never read an, a Rob Liefeld comic before, but I, I think that looks okay. I think this uh, that comic looks his X-Factor first X Factor issue. I actually think yeah, it's not, he, I think it he, looks bad. He, I think it looks pretty. He degrades good, yeah. over time. Not, yeah, I, but, I haven't seen that, and I, I'm sure that, but, that happens. But and, the idea you know. that it was a level. I mean, listen, you're not alone because he was became a sensation in that the whole '90s. Everybody had to adjust their art style to look like Ooh, that. Which I am right. not excited about him writing a comic. Yeah, I, well, I think, he like, gets Simonson fired. Really, interesting. Yeah. His character, his character designs. I think, like the way he draws these characters, like Arc. Allegedly, Rob Liefeld's Archangel. Don't sue versus me. Versus Walt Simonson's Archangel. I think is night and day. See, like, that's I never what I was going to say. Is when you say that the cool. movement, like I think that the way Simon Walt Simonson draws Archangel is unbelievably gorgeous, and the way that he moves through those See, panels yeah, is just, stunning. Oof. So I don't know what to tell you. I don't I, feel like they I move. Think, yeah, I think I, that. I, I, Liefeld's characters never seem to exist in real space to me. They're just kind of puppets that hang. Yeah, I mean, I, I can see that. I just, I just, yeah, it's just it reads, it reads clearer to me. The well, action reads clearer, and I, listen, I think that he, the actual he's like, not involved in Inferno, look, so I don't mean to, I don't yeah. mean to belabor the point. I just think that that's yeah. well. But I'm you were uh, you am, were complimenting it, it Weezy, most, so go back to yes, we should go back yes. to that because you were. I, I think she is excellent, excellent on New Mutants here. Excellent. I, I don't think all of it X Factor. Uh, lit my fire like a lot of it felt especially the early stuff like we read 33 through 35 that stuff with like archangel looking for candy southern and dealing with some of the uh the right and uh, i love the warren and hodge and stuff. stuff because it's so gay yeah. but like that's a separate it's like very yeah, talented see, that, mr the, ripley to me in a way that's that i still enjoy so Hmm. It's still so tied into all that earlier stuff that I'm just like I I don't I don't care. I also am a big not... Candy Southern fan, so, so it's a tra- it's a tragic yeah. story. Okay, but, you know. Um... Yeah, I, I was I was just kind of moving through it, but then her exterminators, and I don't even really like the art on exterminators that much either. I think it's better, but John Beg- Bogdanov I think is doing the art here. Um, I I think exterminators is pretty good. I think she just has she has a really good knack. For certain characters, I think she got stuck with those first five and had a hard time, like, finding their voices. Yeah. Maybe the original five. But then, like, you move into New Mutants and you move into the Exterminators. And I just, like, those characters pop. Mm-hmm. And I feel those characters are. And, like, for the first time, I was really, like, I got invested in, um, what is it? Leech and Artie. Right? Yeah. Like, she's great awesome. with them. Yeah, yeah, she's excellent. Like they became like real fleshed out she, characters. Uh, Whiz kids. Her strong like, suit has becomes... always been children. I mean, she also creates the power pack. Power pack, um, yeah, yeah. And spellbound, which is a mini she did, is worth picking up if you liked hmm. this. It's a similar story to Ileana's, but it ends very differently. Uh, yeah, well, I, I just yeah, I, I agree. I think like all her kids and her teens, like because when she's writing New Mutants with Brett Blevins, yeah, it really sings for me. The Exterminators here works like I, I think the character of Wizkid really. I like, love Wizkid. He's back, by him. the way. They just brought him back. 
excited to see oh cool because i was wondering if he had a history i've never heard of him he's not new not here much. but he's and then he was gone for like a million yeah. years and tomorrow he's debuting in sword number one as part of the new sword team very very cool because i i like that kid. and you know what he's, he's kind of a boring kid if you think about it like it, it's like a boring idea right yeah he does, well his powers he's, aren't he's, very well defined he's forged the thing is, right like she throws but, a lot like, of things at the wall him. and yeah. they don't all work like a bird brain did not work gossamer who appears in this one does not work. oh yeah gossamer i looked gossamer. up gossamer and it was like yeah gossamer will be gone by like 91 yeah because the, the, what i will what i will say is she figures out pretty quickly when a character isn't working and gets rid of them. So, mm-hmm. you know, Birdbrain shows up, does not work, gets Doug killed, and goes off stage. Gossamer shows up, does not work, exits. She's pretty good at that. Um, yeah. I would say that the main criticism people tend to have of her New Mutants run is those two characters because they yeah. take up a lot of page space in the issues they do appear in and they're annoying. But I think that she gets really into in particular the female characters on that team i think that iliana and rain and danny are all really strong yeah in these yeah, rain, and, rain and danny really stand and out, yeah. i think that she also i i mean i think that boom boom is just such a breath of fresh air and when she integrates the two mm-hmm. casts boom after fun. this event it becomes really fun because you add yeah. Richter and Boom Boom to the New Mutants who are a little more serious. They're Xavier kids. You add these sort of punk kids from the street. It becomes a lot more fun. Richter didn't leave much of an impression, but he gets, I'd, I'd be he into seeing Boom Boom. Give him time. Yeah, him I'd, time. Be, I'd be seeing into Boom Boom. As opposed into, to Rusty and uh, Skids, who just never quite worked for me. Right. Rusty and yes, Skids, skids I, I can never get into. Well, she in gets rid way. of them pretty quickly after this. Yeah, yeah. they don't integrate <laughs> the same way, which is fine by me. So, all right. Yeah. So, yes, I would agree. The X Factor, these are my favorite issues of X Factor uh, by the Simonsons, I would say straight up. I do like the Apocalypse debut, but I mean, this is a weak compliment, but I agree. <laughs> all right these are the best all yet. right let's uh let's get clo- we're over an hour here so let's get close to wrapping up um yeah. any final thoughts on inferno as an event things people should look for things people should take away connor you can go first you are our guest oh thank you i've also like talked for most of the episodes so i'm sorry that i just hey, hit, you know, us, hit us with up. your final that's thoughts why we've got you here um i think that one thing we didn't mention that's really worth looking at in this event is the ambiance of the event and i think that's what makes the event feel really unified and holistic is Mm -hmm. you feel like you are now of course i'm from new york so it was very present to me but i think even if you're not super familiar with manhattan you feel like you're in this demon world that has just been twisted a little bit and the way the event opens with that family being eaten in an elevator you know God, all of that, that stuff that scene where they go where screaming they kill down the, the elevator children and, like, right away like this event and it is opens not... up in like a you know the shining bloodbath yes. with with skeletons come pouring yeah. out oh boy and uh similarly the way that the x-men over the course of this event in their fights with the marauders become corrupted by the inferno and their costumes start to change like the Sylvester does really brilliant things panel to panel we we mentioned the scene at the rainbow room where madeline's dress changes every panel but there's also just a lot of subtle work done with the costumes done with the hair done with facial expressions and after this event a lot of characters are sort of fundamentally changed even in ways that are Mm -hmm. not enormously obvious but even the characters who are not necessarily the focus here are touched by the inferno in ways that resonate and that have 
sort of consequences for their future leading into the big Siege Perilous relaunch in 91. Um, and I think that uh, that's something we haven't mentioned that's just sort of worth looking at. If, if you love this event and you haven't read it in a while, pick a character and trace them through the whole event. And you'll kind of be fascinated, I think, by how even Psylocke or Dazzler or other characters who you wouldn't I, yeah, think are well, major. I was, I was going to say that if you pick... And like you said, any one of these characters, we probably could go into as much detail about them as yes. we did Madeline. They pack right. so much which, into these. Which is, it's one of those things where it's just like, if this is what you're hungry for, like, there's so much here. If you are not someone who wants to read this three times to really fully glean it, it can be a little frustrating. You know, I'm a, I'm a Claremont which, obsessive, so this is my right. Shit, yes, right. If it's not exactly. which, if it's yes. not your style, yeah. it's not, this is the this is the peak of Claremont in a many different ways, form yeah. and content. Like this is about I, as Claremonty as it gets. Yeah, I mean, like this is this is right there with Dark Phoenix Saga for me because I, I our last episode that we covered Claremont, I was I mean I mostly was just like, hey, he's still doing good work. I'm tired of it. Like I'm just exhausted. <laughs> he at did this do it point. for 16 like, years, and if it's not your exactly, favorite stuff, we've been, it's we've a been lot. Reading a lot of it and i've liked it you know up and down but you know what like this really got me again and like he really hooked me in with this stuff again it, it got me excited about the x-men mythos and it, you know like it felt like a, a touch point of every little bit felt felt touched and drawn into this all the characters reunified wolverine uh sexually assaulted gene when they met for the first time yeah not ideal like, i like the cheat like knocks him on his ass yeah, 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 but you know the the X Men and the X Factor come back together. Everyone knows that Gene's alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and it it does feel like a, a kind of moment where everybody comes back together. And yeah, it did make me like for the first time in a while want to be like, all right, well, what's gonna happen now with the X Men? Right? Like, it, it well, felt good. like a, a good table table setting for the future. That uh, it definitely you know is. what's crazy? Keep though, reading because the rest of the Outback era, there's no more events, but it's really good. We're gonna <laughs> just just to point this out, Dave. You and I are gonna read. This is eighty nine. Right, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and in 1990, we're jumping to um, just one. one 1990, second. nothing, nothing in 90 is finalized. If that's what you're pulling from here, we're, right? Okay, well, in the unfinalized list, we're we're jumping to something like X Men 266, thereabouts, right? Mm-hmm. Which is 20 issues later. Yeah, no, you want to read the 20 in the middle first, I assure you. Absolutely wild how much stuff happens in X-Men. Yeah. You know, like... It's bi-weekly. Because it's it's, it's twice a month at this Double shipping will do that to you, particularly when Claremont packs so much into every issue, which he does. 24 issues per year. Yeah, Jubilee gets introduced in the next issue after this. Yes. That's crazy. I I saw that and I I was just I forgot that's the next issue. That's interesting, yeah. Probably the biggest event, the biggest, like convergence of story he's ever done in the next character the next episode next issue my god he's like yeah let me let me introduce you know another huge character who's yeah. going to be sure you know, when you a think about how X-Men many characters decades. who have become iconic parts of pop culture this one guy created it's you know we all know that about stanley and jack kirby or whatever but when you yeah. look at 16 years of the x-men which for most of those 16 years was the number one comic book in the entire world yeah um it's staggering how many characters came like just burst forth from his head like even if you don't always love it athena from the head of zeus yeah no they're not all winners i'm just saying that it's like 300 of them i I mean yeah yeah i mean it's its own universe of marvel right like it it, it feels like it's as big as the rest of well and it's all i cared about as a kid so and i didn't need to know anything about the avengers because claremont's x-men with the Simonson stuff also and the Alan Davis Excalibur and whatnot 
but it all it, it was its own world. Yeah. You didn't need oh, well, to. Can can I point out something that it made me really mad halfway through this? Sure. Obviously, I just remember your podcast, where your the hell is, where the hell is Alpha Flight? Alpha Where's Flight Alpha sucks. Flight? I, is the gist. Uh, no, no. All right, well, go to the, the Canadian uh, Alpha Flight is <laughs> Alpha Flight's incredible. <laughs> They're my fave, and I just realized that like I haven't seen Alpha Flight in what ten years. Well, but why would they be in Manhattan Eight? when the demon bomb hit? I don't know, but I why just, would they just be in Although I will I say, that, like, they never Excalibur get shows up, and they had to cross the ocean, so there's really no yeah, excuse for Alpha Flight not popping in. Yeah, I want to see Puck. I want to see Puck during this. Especially Puck, because if, if Puck had Flight, a solo, Alpha we'd Flight read Puck knows solo. Madeline because of X-Men Alpha Flight when she became Anodyne. So That's it would true. have been, you know, <laughs> there would have been some stuff there. You should read yeah, that. Just, it's good. I, if you like Alpha it, Flight, read X-Men Alpha Flight. It's, 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 no, it's no actual, like, criticism of this event. It just, in the middle of this, I just realized, like, hey, we never get an Alpha Flight crossover. And it's still running. And it just, it makes me bummed. Well, I, I think... Um, if I'm going to speculate wildly, I think maybe Byrne and Claremont weren't super tight at this juncture. I think Byrne was off of it oh, by this he? point. I don't no, know. You're who, right. Yeah, no, you're he, right. He only so did like the first like yeah, 30, what? so I don't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I think I, I that's know. the I'm eternal X Men sure problem, it. though, is like, where are the Avengers? And it's like, well, if the X Men are going to handle their storylines, the Avengers can't really show up. But the side effect of that is the Avengers end up looking like real because they don't care about <laughs> yes. mutants, right? So can, right. yeah, can can I say this? This also as as feeling like the first real event that we've read. This does feel like the first thing where I'm like, I'm really excited to read the crossovers yeah. next episode. Well, it like, is we're the first read real a event. Whole bunch of crossovers because mutant massacres I, the first like summer event like that. I mean, Secret Wars is Secret real Wars. It's X-Men like you know event. Yeah, Secret Wars, but it's boring and you know, and it doesn't take place so on like, Earth, so it's different. You know, like it's not the stakes. Or feel... Secret Wars, but Secret, Secret Wars, Wars Two is anyway, the first uh, real Marvel Universe event. Yes, it is this just is, so bad that we ignore just... it and say it's Inferno. I mean, it's, it's very great gowns, and... beautiful gowns. I love the Julia Carpenter Spider Woman outfit. That's a beautiful sure. outfit. That's all I really yeah. have to say about Secret Wars Two. I, I, I just. It's the first event that made me be like, "Hey, I'm I'm curious what Captain America has to do during this." Like, right, like what, what? What? Guess what? Daredevil. Daredevil's gonna get into some sh- in the Inferno. <laughs> I, I've heard. I've heard what he fights in this, and it's a classic. Daredevil's an all-timer. But you know, it's on the list. Yeah, yeah. I I want to see like how the rest of Marvel is is you know reacting to mailboxes biting people's or what like um the 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 Wolverine uh, fought a mailbox the, Daredevil yeah. fought a vacuum right the binoculars on yeah. top of the, the binoculars on the Empire State like Building stole the guy's eyes, eyes I love when yeah. I love when Ilyana is resisting is trying not to kill anything because she's been told it will you know be the oh she the has deal. a breakdown and she, she ends yeah. up killing the barber's chair and he's like the, you the killed chair. me master she's... will be so she's like you can't die you're a chair and he's like well sorry new rules now yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there's a beautiful Inferno omnibus coming next year that's going to collect all of it. So like, interesting, uncanny, X Factor, New Mutants, X Terminators, and all mm. of the tie-ins and Excalibur, and then all of the tie-ins from the non-X titles. Interesting. So I'm mm. excited about that's coming in March, I think. Yeah, that's a big one. That is massive. All right, cool. So this will do it for Inferno Part 1. Yeah. Connor, thanks for joining. Where should people look yeah, for you? thank you. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon. Dream of O-R-G-O-N-O-N. It's a Kate Bush lyric, sorry. Uh, or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith, which is taken on Twitter. Uh, you can find my podcast, Cerebro, at Cerebrocast on Twitter or Instagram. You can go to Cerebrocast.com to find all the episodes and transcripts of the episodes as I get them up. Uh, that's a labor 
labor intensive, so they're slow going, but I will do that uh, because I'm committed to doing that for deaf and hard of hearing people. And also because some people don't want to listen to a three hour podcast and I get it. Um, We've had some really fun guests last while. I mean, all my guests are fun, but I had three ex office writers recently, uh, Teeny Howard, Jerry Duggan and editor Jordan White. So it's been a fun uh, little run there. And um, yeah, come join me. I'm uh, I, I'm always on the Cerebrocast Twitter account because I work from home and publishing, which is my day job, shuts down in December. So I'm not really doing anything right now besides nonsense. There you go. There you go. Thank you guys All for right, having me. Yes. This was so much fun. Yeah. And yeah, uh, please, please feel free to like audacity the hell out of my long tangents if it becomes unwieldy. Understandable. Uh, yeah, you can find us at MyMarvelousYear.com. You can find uh, Patreon.com slash MyMarvelousYear for ways to support the show. You can find all the comics we're going to be reading, including those tie-ins for Inferno Part 2 in the show notes here, as well as on the full list, which you can get if you are a Patreon backer. I'm Dave. You can find my stuff at ComboCurl.com. That's Zach. You can find him at My Marvelous Year on social. Music for the show is by Disaster Peace. Uh, anything else? Anything else at all? That's it. Team Whatever. Maddie. Justice for Madeline. Justice She's a real person. <laughs> all right. Sorry. Topical. I gotta, topical I gotta do my... Well, and read the first Dark of Hellions if you haven't. There you it's go. It's real exactly. good. Zeb Wells. Yeah, exactly. Genius. Oh, love that book. All right. Thanks everybody for listening and as always, we'll see you next year. See you next year. See you next year.